Even now he could see the words before him. Make haste. The hour is come. Nicodemus. The hour had come, it said. But how could it have come? Joseph had thought in anguish. It wasn't time. Throwing caution to the winds, Joseph had roused his sleeping crew and given the command to bring his flagship to the port of Joppa. Then once in port, he'd violated Roman curfew as he headed off alone into the night. For the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of elders, would meet at dawn, and when they did, he must be there. On the dangerous roads of the back country, in the black silence broken only by the sounds of horses' hooves on broken stone, Joseph heard the silent thought whispered over and over in the depths of his own mind. What had the Master done? As Joseph of Arimathea entered the city, the first faint haze of red was bleeding into the sky above the Mount of Olives. He left his horse to be watered and groomed, then quickly went on foot, two steps at a time, up the flights of stone stairs to the upper city. In the damp pre-dawn darkness around him, he noticed the stirrings of the sacred acacia trees in the early morning breeze. Arising from alcoves and archways, they seemed to permeate each pore of this labyrinthine city. Suddenly there was the regal Nicodemus standing before him. Joseph had arrived at the familiar gates of the park surrounding Nicodemus's palace. A servant was locking the gates behind him as Nicodemus threw open his arms to welcome his friend. "'You've remained far too long among pagans, my friend,' Nicodemus said, shaking his head. "'Even your appearance is nearly blasphemy in the eyes of God.' "'It was hard to deny,' thought Joseph ruefully, with his short toga and high-laced sandals, his muscular, tanned limbs, his skin crackled and leathery from the burn of salt sea air, and his hair uncut in the prescribed fashion, he knew he must look a good deal more like a Celt than what he actually was, a distinguished and respected Judean merchant, and, like Nicodemus, an official council member of the Seventy, the common name for the Sanhedrin. As they started downhill, Nicodemus pointed out, you encouraged the master, when he was still a boy, to follow these foreign ways that can only lead to destruction. Even so, the last few weeks I've prayed for your arrival before it's too late, for perhaps only you can undo the damage that's been done this past year in your absence. It was true that Joseph had raised the young master as his own child, ever since the boy's father, a carpenter also named Joseph, had died. He'd taken him abroad on many voyages to learn the ancient wisdoms of diverse cultures. Despite this parental role, Joseph of Arimathea, having by now attained the forty years required to sit in the Sanhedrin, was only seven years older than his surrogate son, whom he could not help but think of as the master. Something I could undo? I came as soon as I could upon receiving your note, Joseph assured him. But I assumed a political crisis, an emergency, some unforeseen incident that caused our plan to change. Nicodemus stopped on the trail and regarded Joseph with his sad, dark eyes. Joseph suddenly saw how much his friend had aged in one short year. He put his hands on Nicodemus's shoulders and waited gravely. There is no political crisis said Nicodemus, at least not yet. 
but something perhaps far worse has taken place. I suppose one might call it a crisis of faith. He himself is the crisis, you see. He has changed until you'd scarcely recognize him. Even his own mother doesn't understand it. No more do his closest disciples, the twelve he calls the magic circle. He has changed? Changed how? said Joseph. As Nicodemus searched for words, Joseph looked down over the city, where the acacia stirred in the breeze like fingers, stroking him with rustling sighs. Beyond in the distance lay the majestic outcropping of the Temple of Solomon, and beneath it the chamber of hewn stone, where the Sanhedrin would meet this morning. The temple had been conceived in a dream by Solomon's father, David, the first true king of Israel. It was the soul of the Jewish people, rising from a sea of open courtyards, its white marble pillars glowing like forests of ghost trees in the morning light. The temple shone from the valley like the sun. As this radiance filled Joseph's heart, though, he heard the voice of Nicodemus murmur in his ear, My dear Joseph, I can think of no other way to explain it. I think we all fear it seems likely that the Master has gone completely mad. The chamber of hewn stone was reached by a spiral stairway of thirty-three steps carved from the ancient rock. In the days of summer its clammy chill came as a relief, but today it only added to the presentiment of doom that had already settled in Joseph's spine at Nicodemus's words. When all the members of the council had filed down the spiral stair and taken their seats, the noble Rab Gamaliel, his long hair and rich robes billowing about him, came forward to open the council meeting. A grave assignment has been given us by God, Gamaliel intoned in his dramatic voice. Whatever our mission, whatever our desire, and whatever the outcome of today's gathering, I feel I speak for all of us when I say that no one will leave this room with a feeling of complete satisfaction in this sorry case of Jesua ben Joseph of Nazareth. I turn to Joseph of Arimathea, whose unique relationship with Jesua is well known. Accordingly, I should like to begin by asking Joseph how he would like this meeting to proceed, as, due to his long absence, he is the only one among us who may be unaware of all the circumstances that have led up to the current crisis. Joseph replied, I thank you all warmly from my heart. I've just arrived this morning before dawn. I've had no time to sleep or bathe or dress. Indeed, I've had no time to learn what is the matter before us, only that Jesua, the master, whom, as many of you know, I regard as my entire family, is in some deep and serious plight involving us all. Then we must tell you the story, said Gamaliel. The Tale of the Master Last autumn during the equinox, he arrived alone in Jerusalem at the Festival of Tabernacles. It came as a shock to everyone who knew him. The disciples had asked him three times to come down with them from Galilee to spread the word of God as he did at all holy events and to perform healings for the festival crowds. He refused thrice and sent them off. But then he came down secretly by himself, arriving suddenly 
unexpectedly in the outer courts of the temple. He seemed strange and mysterious, not at all himself, as if following some inner pattern of his own. At the close of the eighth night of this festival, the host recites a prayer, a prayer older than the festival itself. What does he pray for? He asks one favor from God, that next year he might be counted worthy to sit in the booth of Leviathan. And what does the booth of Leviathan signify? The coming of a new age, the age of the messianic kingdom that begins with the appearance of a Messiah who will release us from bondage, unite us, bring back the ark, and glorify the temple like David and Solomon. As the natural successor of these mighty princes, he'll lead the chosen people to glory and bring about the golden dawn of a new eon. As you see, it could therefore be no accident that the Master came down from Galilee alone to attend this specific festival. It was in the Garden of Nicodemus that he appeared that eighth night for the Simchath Torah. Nicodemus's park was large and well stocked with trees. As always on this occasion, there were many tents of boughs and flowers and torches illuminating the feast so the gates might remain open for pilgrims and others to drop in. At the end of the feast, when Nicodemus stood to give the blessing and ask for the honor next year at this time to sit in the tent of the sea beast, the master himself arose from his seat in one of the booths not far away. In his flowing white robes, his hair whirling wildly around him, he crossed to where Nicodemus was standing, and sweeping the platters and goblets to one side, he climbed onto the low brass table. He held up an urn of water, and grasping the branches of the bower with the other hand to steady himself, he began to pour water everywhere on the table, on the ground, splashing the guests still reclining there. Everyone was amazed. No one knew what he meant by this action, or could even imagine. Then the master tossed down the urn, his arms aloft, he cried, I am the water, I pour myself out for you. Whoever thirsts should come and drink from me. If you believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from you. And, as it was recalled afterwards by those present, his voice was so rich, his command of words so inspiring that it wasn't until later that they realized no one had the vaguest clue what he was talking about. But that was only the beginning. Just three months ago, long after the festival, the Master was called to Bethany, to the home of young Lazarus, brother of Miriam and Martha of Magdalai, among the Master's closest disciples. The boy was gravely ill and longed to see him before he died, but the master behaved badly, refusing to go down from Galilee and see the family, although the situation was critical and the women begged him to try to heal the boy, to save him from certain death. By the time he finally came, the child had been dead for three days. Miriam told them that the corpse was rotted and stinking, and she and her sister refused to grant the master the access he requested to the crypt. So he stood outside. He stood outside and called to young, dead Lazarus until he raised him. He raised him from the tomb of his fathers. He raised him in his decaying condition, wrapped in the rotted burial cloths, 
with maggots already working on the corpse. Dear God, whispered Joseph of Arimathea when the tale was over. Some preached that death was simply the end of life. Others taught that for the good man, for the life well lived, there could be the reward of eternal life in heaven. But nobody believed in the concept of resurrection, of bringing a rotted corpse from the grave back to existence on earth. It was a horror beyond imagining. Joseph had to see the master in person, at once. He knew him better than anyone. He had to see him before the others, before it was too late. Joseph sped to Bethany, the home of Lazarus of Magdalai and his sisters Miriam and Martha. When he reached the house in Bethany, he saw the master, but he seemed somehow transformed. He was surrounded by as many as a hundred people, as usual most of them female, also dressed in white and bearing armloads of flowers, who were singing a strange but haunting chant. Joseph sat speechless in his cart. When the master came up to him, his robes flowing like water over his limbs, he looked into Joseph's eyes and smiled. Joseph saw him just in that instant as the little child he once had been. Beloved Joseph, said the master, taking him by the hands and drawing him from the cart, how I have thirsted for you. Then he said, Will you stay with me, Joseph? For dinner, you mean, and the night, said Joseph. Yes, it's all been arranged by Martha, and I'll stay for as long as you like. We must speak. I mean, will you stay with me? The master asked again, almost as if repeating a mnemonic phrase. Though he was still smiling, a part of him seemed to be looking off into a deep distance. Joseph felt a horrible chill. Shaking his fears aside, he stopped the master and drew him within the shelter of the nearby grape trellises. My beloved son, said Joseph softly, you've altered so in the one short year of my absence that I don't know you any more. The master turned his gaze to Joseph. I have not changed, he said with a sad smile. It is the world itself that's changing, Joseph. In such times of change, though, we must all focus upon the one thing that's unchanging and imperishable. The day is now dawning that has been foretold since the time of Enoch, Elijah, Jeremiah. And just as I helped bring young Lazarus from the grave, it's now our task to deliver the world into this new age. That's why I'm here. I hope you will join me, all of you.